Hi, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile's Sound Notes. This is our podcast where we talk to the folks that work at Leading Agile, the coaches, um, everybody who's out in the field, including the leadership of our fine company, about things that are going on in the Agile space and in, in the, the different areas of work that we come in contact with. So our fearless leader, Mike Kottmeyer, has taken time out of his very busy morning. Mike, thanks for taking the time out. Thanks for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. So we're going to talk about something that's been kind of coming up in the press over the past year, sporadically over the past year, but we've been all talking about it a little bit more recently, and that is bimodal. We're going to talk about it because you've actually spoke to the people that came up with the idea, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really curious about, from your perspective, what is this? Where does it fit? Is it actually real or is it just vapor? Yeah. So, so what I think Gartner's trying to do um, by spinning up this bimodal conversation is to get IT leaders to acknowledge that the way that they've been doing things historically is not necessarily going to be what they need to do moving forward. Um, we're starting to see a lot of legacy IT organizations that are so encumbered with legacy architecture, legacy, um, you know, technical debt, legacy, whatever, that they can't move and they can't innovate. And so to me, kind of in its simplest form is that when we talk about bimodal, we're basically saying that, that the, um, the typical IT organization is going to have to have two ways or two modes of operating. There's mode one, which is really, um, you might call it business as usual, but I think we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go. It's at least the the more traditional plan-driven way more of, familiar. of doing IT. The more familiar, right? Um, I think Gardner would be the first to tell you that there's not many organizations that are actually doing by mo- or the mode one stuff very well. But this, this notion that in order to be innovative, uh, that you're really going to almost have to spin up a parallel organization that's going to operate in mode two – which is more um, adaptive, more agile, more lean startup, right? And so, um, again, right, they're pushing IT to acknowledge that there's at least going to be these two different modes of operation moving forward and, and trying to get CIOs to get their head around that. So, so I want to kind of back into this a little bit because okay. for me, when I saw this, I mean, I've been doing those workshops for PMI about hybrids for a while, and this is a different thing to me because – I see, I would define hybrid as there's two ways you can do that. You can either just do this unconscious one where we throw half of it out and say, that looks weird. We're not going to do it. We're just going to call this, you know, waterfall agile or whatever. And it doesn't really work the way it's supposed to a lot of the time. Or you make a conscious choice. You try things out. You see what fits. You decide what pieces to keep and what's removed based on empirical evidence. And that's a more conscious hybrid. And this is something different. This is, as you said, it's two separate like separate but equal parts of the organization living side by side with separate staff. Yeah, so so I think I think what we're seeing kind of in this marketplace of ideas when when Gardner introduces an idea like bimodal, I think people are taking it as I can use my existing processes, my existing tools, my existing frameworks, my existing everything and kind of using it as ground cover for business as usual. And, um, and then what they're, they're saying on the other side is that, okay, well, there's going to be some subset of our organization that's going to go on this highly adaptive, um, innovative um, model of working. And so <clears throat> when we're talking about hybrids, we're not really talking about 
blends of agile, lean, lean startup kinds of things blended with waterfall. I mean, that tends to be the mess that a lot of people create. What we're really basically saying is that there's a certain part of the organization that needs to be predictable and plan-driven, able to make and meet commitments, requires a, a higher level of specificity, a higher level of, um, you know, planning, more cross-cutting concerns, more internal dependencies, more external dependencies, that kind of a thing. But then there's this other part of the organization that is going to be more adaptive and innovative and recognizing that these two things exist. Now, for the part that needs to be more plan-driven, the way that we approach it is we kind of map the bimodal stuff into our four quadrants. And so we look at um, bimodal as really being stuff that's really below the horizontal line. We call that quadrant two or quadrant three, where we're using agile lean techniques, team-driven backlogs, working tested software, but with longer planning horizons, more intentionality, right, that kind of a thing. Lower left quadrant um, for us. And um, that maps pretty nicely to, to mode one stuff. But what we're recognizing is structured, disciplined, plan-driven, regardless of the techniques you're using. Mode two, being more adaptive and innovative, is going to use more lean startup, more experimental, more R&D. You can use Agile in both modes, but how you implement Agile is, is very different depending upon which mode you're trying to operate in. I, that's, I think that's a really important point, too, is that Agile would fit under either one. Um, but let's, so I want to ask you about intention, because to me... Mm -hmm. This one of the things that about the, the the base camps that I think is great is that it does force conscious choices along the way, and you can stop and say, "I'm good here. Like this is enough for right now." Mm -hmm. And and I like the idea. The thing that's appealing to me about bimodal is that you are making a conscious choice to have two different streams because you know for whatever reason one goes one place and the other. It's not just this slapped together thing. But yeah, you talk to a lot of like industry leaders and C-level people, mm -hmm. do you find that their approach to this is becoming sort of more mature or mindful or intentional in, in not just saying, well, let's just do this because there's a new book and it sounds awesome and it was in Harvard Business Review, but, but like, let's make a conscious, intelligent choice about what to change and why? Um, y yes. Um, you know, I, so, so, okay, my brain kind of forks in kind of three different directions on this stuff um, where, where I might want to take the conversation. So to answer your question directly, yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think a lot of the folks, at least the ones that are calling us and that we're talking to, um, are recognizing that there's certain things that, that the Agile community is talking about that have merit that don't necessarily um, work for them. So what what we're seeing is, is an openness amongst C-level leaders to take what's good in Agile, what makes sense in Agile, and to be able to apply it in their situationally specific context. Um, the, the, so, so with that kind of as a base, when you, when you tie that into the bimodal conversation or what Leading Agile is doing with our compass and our base camps and things like that, so what, what Leading Agile is really saying is that for an organization to make a transition, they usually start in our lower left quadrant, base camp one, base camp two, and work to stabilize the system. And as you move into base camp three and base camp four, you start to decouple the legacy architecture. You start to decouple some of the dependencies, um, business dependencies, technical dependencies, organizational dependencies that are getting in the way of agility. And as you make this progression, then you can start changing your governance models and you can start to move into a more mode two like um, mechanism. So, but here's the reality. 
a lot of organizations that we're working with, um, parts of the organization are going to be perfectly fine at base camp one and base camp two. That's pretty much where Gartner's saying mode one is. And okay. so in mode one, base camp one, base camp two in leading agile language, you can stabilize the system, become more predictable, become more um, agile, have more business agility, but do it in a more mindful kind of plan driven way. Okay. It's a more structured, more disciplined form of agile. Okay. That's lower left quadrant. So, you, so, so sorry, you can, no, have, no, let me finish. Let me okay. finish this thought real quick. Right. But the challenge is, is that, is that while we're kind of articulating this base camp three, which is a progressive decoupling, what Gardner's saying is that there's no way you're going to untangle this mess. Okay. It's too legacy. It's maybe even too important. It's never going to operate in a, in a base camp four, base camp five kind of model, which is closer to the, to the, the Gartner mode too. So whereas we're kind of articulating this one through five stepwise, we're kind of acknowledging a lot of folks are just need to go through steps one and two and don't need to do anything else. There's going to be some organizations that are going to need to make the switch through base camp three. But then there's other parts of the organization that are going to just go straight to base camp four and base camp five. The challenge is, is that has to be largely greenfield. You can't do it on top of or within the code base that's holding you back into mode one. Okay, so right? this, there's a lot. So, so that's a lot, right? The, yeah. the main thing that that I want to that I started to interrupt you about before was so you can have part of the organization stop at you know at, at one and two, two. Yep. yeah, one and two, yep. and then you would spin up this other part that, or or continue this other part on the journey towards. Um, towards the rest of the camps but that that is a huge switch and and the other thing you touched on was that the idea of mode one so this was like the big light came shining down thing when i was reading all that stuff whatever what they're saying and correct me if i'm wrong whatever you're doing now like you've got the system in place you're trying to do some you know whatever half-hearted form of agile whatever seems comfortable Uh to you that's not mode one like your waterfall is not mode one. Your waterfall is mode zero. Well, okay. So, so let's be really clear. It, it, it could be mode zero or it could be mode one. Um, there are organizations in this world that are doing very structured, disciplined, plan-driven waterfall project management and having success with it. Okay. Okay. So if you're doing, <clears throat> if you have a legacy architecture that's that's well understood, a team of experts, you've got dedicated resources, right? You take away a lot of the nonsense that we put into Waterfall right now, yeah. and you really do a structured, governance-driven SDLC kind of a thing. Um, that's not impossible. It's unlikely that a lot of the organizations are doing that well. Sure. So I don't want to say that you can't ever do Waterfall and be a solid mode one company. Um, I, I think most I guess- of the organizations, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm just worried. When I read it, I was worried that everybody's going to assume they're already mode one and they're just going to spin up. Well, of- yeah. So, so again, that's the problem I was alluding to earlier. Is that is that I think people are going to read the Gartner mode one, mode two stuff, and they're going to say, "Oh, okay, yeah." So let's we'll do we'll do most of our organization business as usual, kind of crappy IT delivery, not hitting any dates, or whatever, because you know that's just it, you would just have to do waterfall. But then these few projects over here, they can do um, mode two, right? That's okay. We'll let that. We'll let those guys be agile. Here's the Here's the thing, right? So every IT organization, whether it be a mode one or mode two, needs to be able to make and meet commitments. It needs to be able to satisfy its customers and its stakeholders and things like that. Um, was as I when I was at the Gartner conference a couple of weeks ago, and I was going deeper um, into some of these things and, and talking to folks about it. 
um, what you find is that is that what what Gardner's really kind of talking about. And I'm going to try to see if I can. It's just complicated. I'm going to see if I can um, extend the metaphor here. Is that they're not really saying that there's some projects that are mode one and some projects that are mode two. There's some systems. Um, I think they use the word like systems of record. The that um, that need to be more plan driven. So there's certain parts of the architectural infrastructure that need not change so much. That it would be too much okay. work to push over to the other side. Or, or, or maybe even, yeah, it would be too much work, but maybe even you make the case that they don't need to be as innovative or as fast moving. And so the, the metaphor that they talked about, this is really kind of stuck with me. I don't fully have my head around it, but they talked a lot about APIs and algorithms. And, and I think Gartner sees a world where there's like this static kind of data interface layer that just exposes information out into the world, right? So there's just a series of APIs that are, that are out there just um, making stuff available. And that stuff needs to be plan-driven. It needs to be um, more stable, right? Because that's the data, right? That's the business intelligence. And people are dependent upon that. They're dependent upon it, right? It can't change. It can't change as fast. Okay, or at least it shouldn't. And again, right, this is all context sensitive, but um, in a lot of companies that needs to be if you so like you think about some of like our large financial institutions, you know, the transaction processing engines, the yeah. billing engines, um, the, the data repositories, things like that. Right. You know, that stuff's probably not going to change as fast. Um, but then on top of that, how you interact with the data. Um, is the part that needs to be innovative. So new ways of engaging customers, new workflows, um, new applications that ride on top of that data. And the analogy that they used, which was, which was really fascinating to me, was this notion of like mode one being kind of all the backend stuff that needs to be stable. And then mode two almost operating kind of like in an, in an app store kind of model. And, and, you know, I almost envisioned, you know, like a, like an HR system and, um, you know, you've got all your systems of record, all your stuff about people and payroll and all that kind of things, all your tax information, all that kind of stuff. That's really static and, and largely in place. It might need to change, but it changes more incrementally and over longer periods of time. Whereas the front end, the apps that, that interact with that data they are largely, they need to be incredibly adaptive to responding needs of the market, um, user preferences, working styles, um, you know, different ways of exposing the data. Okay. And, um, and so if you use this kind of this backend data repository versus app store metaphor, it kind of like helps people understand, um, a little bit. And so there's certain parts of the system that need to be innovative and there's certain parts of the system that need to be more stable. Neither one of those things really speaks to what methodology you use. And then um, that's, that's in yeah. sync with what we're doing at the base camps anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we, we absolutely have a preference at Leading Agile. You know, so when we take somebody from upper left quadrant, um, what I guess you might call like a mode zero thing, into mode one, lower left quadrant, we, we definitely have a point of view on what we believe works. So you know, a lot of the podcasts that we've done to date, Dave, we've been talking about the idea of stable teams, clear yeah. backlogs, working tested software, using kind of lean Kanban-based governance flows to coordinate at the program and portfolio level, right? Really structured um, 18, or not 18, probably nine to 12-month roadmaps, very intentional requirements decomposition, feeding the teams, um, dependency aware, cross-cutting concern aware backlogs. You know, you can do structured, plan-driven, agile. It might not be as agile as some people want to be, but in tightly coupled legacy kind of architecture environments, that's a necessary level of planning and coordination. 
yeah. just is. And, and I think it's inarguable at this stage. Um, so, so go ahead. That's what you just said is the thing that I was going to ask you about next. Yeah. It's inarguable. So I'm just going to put this out. I want to see what, yeah. what you think about it. Uh, to me, it seems like as Agile has evolved, like it came out of new kid in school, everybody wants it. It's going to solve all the world's problems. And then people start to say, well, what about this? And what about that? Yeah. Then you get dad, you get safe, yeah. you get less because yeah. it doesn't have a good enterprise answer. And yeah. now you've got things like this that's saying, you know, people are like hybrids are bad. And then now maybe not, you know, and now PMI's <clears> got this whole organizational business agility thing that they're trying to figure out is, do you think that, that there's something that's missing from the equation with agile that, or people are just understanding it well, differently? Like it's, there's these bigger things that are not answered that people are focused yeah. on. That. Well, so, so, so here's, here's the challenge. I mean, it's almost agile's almost always sold as a, as a mindset shift. Like, like, Oh, if you were just more empowering or you let your team self-organize or you just were adaptive or more uncomfortable with uncertainty or whatever, and then just let the teams go, then everything would work. Yeah. Well, I don't think that that's true. Um, the other thing where kind of the methodologists come in is we say, okay, well, if you just apply scrum prescriptively or safe prescriptively or that or less prescriptively, then, then the world will be good. Okay. Right. The, the, the third angle, the one that we tend to focus on the most is, is what are the organizational conditions that lead to agility? And again, right, we're, we're kind of going over familiar territory here, but the notion of dependencies between the operating agents is really what slows down uh, the ability to be agile. So even if you take a, a perfectly formed scrum team that's doing everything right with scrum, has the right mindset, the right everything, but they have a delivery dependency on a legacy architecture that can only deploy every nine months, the, the agility of the overall organization is going to be limited to the agility of its weakest player. Okay. Okay. And so the only way to increase agility of these small, well-formed teams is to break the dependencies between them. Okay. And so when it comes to dependencies, you've got two choices. You either manage them and coordinate them or you break them. Okay. And so where I think most of the industry is missing the mark is that it's not dealing with the hard problems of how we form teams, where backlog comes from, how we produce software, what structure governance and metrics kind of in leading agile terms. And then once we have a vision for how these teams are going to get formed and where they're going to get backlog and how they're going to produce software, um, do we or do we not need to break the dependencies over time? Um, people are applying concepts that are designed for small teams, small independent teams to companies where there's nothing small and nothing independent yeah. <laughs> about them, yes. right? And, and, and people are like, well, well, let's just let the team self-organize. and Take your 10,000 people and have them organize into groups of nine. Yeah, I mean, you're just not going <laughs> to – people aren't going to self-organize dependencies away. Right. Um, I mean, just not at any kind of scale, right? Three, four teams, sure, maybe, okay? But, you know, even you get up into like 10 teams and 15 teams and people just can't get their head around it. Okay. And, and you just see that in practice all the time. Right. So, you know, I'm not really talking about idealized. Yeah. People should be able to, or if we just did this then people might be able to, I'm just talking about the way I see human beings respond in the face of this kind of change. 
Okay. And so, so I think, you know, maybe kind of tying back to our, our mode one, mode two thing is I think that you're going to see some parts of some organization that need to move into a mode one structured, disciplined, plan driven, um, using agile tools and techniques, using iterative and incremental delivery, but within a larger coordinated plan driven context. I think that's okay. I think there's going to be certain things where that is the appropriate way to do it. Then you're going to have certain aspects of the business that are going to have to be built um, at what we would call base camp four, base camp five, but those would be like what Gardner calls mode two. Yeah. And in the mode two world, there's, there's an opportunity to build adaptive, innovative, market leading kinds of offerings that leverage the existing APIs but acknowledge that if they're leveraging the existing APIs and they're not totally self-contained, that they can only be innovative within their context. They have to use the data that is given to them. Cool. Okay. That's mode two. Okay. Now I think now one thing that I think Gardner's punted on. And on the mode still, two, that's that's a disruptive side of the house. Well, it can be disruptive, right? Um, you know, we we actually struggle with this language internally to leading agile. So there's a couple different kinds of innovation. There's the disruptive innovation where we're basically trying to really almost deprecate our existing business model before our customers do. Yeah. Right. Incredibly fast and innovative market inventing. But then there's the kind of innovation that has to happen within the boundaries of what we're trying to do, where I need innovative offerings within this container. So I'm I'm opening up the notion of innovation and even the mode two stuff to be inclusive of both of those types of innovation. Okay. But so, so we have the, the, the mode one, the kind of the heavy plan driven. And again, right. My lean agile is, is the way to achieve that. In my opinion, then you've got the, the mode two stuff, which um, should be innovative even with, within containers or, or the disruptive innovation that you talked about. But I think there's also an intermediate step where certain things need to be more operate in a more mode two way. Yeah. But there but the constraints around them, the, the organizational dependencies are are squarely force them into a mode one camp because there's just no other alternative in the short run. And so some intentionality about pulling out pieces of what's operating in a mode one world through again what leading agile calls base camp three, decoupling them and then moving them into a mode two, base camp four, base camp five kind of model. Yeah. Okay, so you end up with things that are going to stay mode one, um, and that's fine. You end up with things that need to go straight to mode two, but that's more, you know, build it from the ground up. And then you have pieces of the mode one world that need to make the transition and operate in a mo- more of a mode two mindset. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and there's things, and the cool thing is, Dave, is that what we're starting to, to really figure out, and you know, I've actually known it for a while, but we're starting to articulate it more clearly, is that there's actually ways of being able to talk about this, to identify which pieces need to be here, which pieces need to be there, which pieces need to transition, what does it look like to transition I think them. simply the fact that we can say some stuff doesn't need to transition is amazing. Yeah. Well, so, so the big problem, you know, putting this in Gartner language, I wrote a post um, a couple uh, weeks ago, months ago now, maybe called like Then a Miracle Happens. And it was, I think it's Scott Adams. I can't remember the, the cartoonist, but it's like the two scientists standing at the board and there's a bunch of math on one side of the board and a bunch of math on the other side. And there's a cloud in the middle that says, and then a miracle happens. And, <laughs> and then the punchline of the, of the cartoon is um, that, uh, that, you know, it's not Scott Adams. He's guy does, um, Gilbert, Gilbert, I think. Yeah. But anyway, so I okay, So that other random agile card, yeah, some other, some other, yeah. But anyway, so the punchline of the, of the, um, 
of the uh, cartoon is, I think you need to be more explicit in step two. Okay. And, and so what we're basically saying as an agile community, and this is what sea level leaders are, are not buying into, is that they recognize that they have a mode one business problem. And furthermore, they have a, an architectural um, backend that is, that forces them into mode one, whether they like it or not. Okay. They might desire to be this mode two kind of adaptive, innovative thing. Okay. But they, but they know that there's constraints and limitations on their ability to do that. And what we're, what we're sell, selling people often in our spaces, we'll just send everybody to scrum training and then you'll just magically pass from mode one to mode two. Okay. And, um, or, you know, whatever training or whatever process or whatever it is that we think is the silver bullet that we can just pass through. And, and I mean, our belief is that that just doesn't work. And I don't think the C-level guys are buying it. We were talking with a a company yesterday and we were talking about um, scaled agile framework and, you know, they, they've been trying to do this and they, they see limitations and, and while, um, you know, it's helped them a little bit, it's not solving the real problem. And as you might imagine, the problems around forming teams and what to do with the legacy architecture and which pieces need to be mode one and which pieces need to be mode two and the pieces that need to go from mode one to mode two, how do we transition them, right? What does that look like? And there's just no answers, Okay. And so, so what's cool about, about being able to have the conversation this way is we can say, look, not everything needs to be mode two. Let's get really good at doing the mode one stuff. And here's a way of doing the mode one stuff, you know, for the stuff that needs to be mode two, where we can legitimately, um, create the conditions for it. Then let's create the conditions for it out of the box. Let's, um, create, um, a mode two world. Let's understand what it takes to make a mode two world successful and let's do mode two, but let's not gum it up with a bunch of mode one stuff. Yeah. And then for the pieces that do need to genuinely transform, let's talk about what does it take to peel those out and refactor those pieces into standalone entities. Um, again, right. Affect the governance around them and then move them into a more of a mode two um, world. So, okay. So one of the things you said that I've been kind of, my brain kind of tripped when you said it, you talked about ex- executives of companies that said they're forced into mode one, whether they like it or not. And yeah. that's a, that was sort of like this moment where I'm like, you know what? We're the ones that have been telling them all this time. You should just go over there and it'll be awesome. Like it'll be, first, yeah, right? you, can, you, can, you can become a breatharian and live on sunlight and you'll be fine. And they're like, no, I need a hamburger. But now yeah. whether it's safe or whatever, people are trying to answer the questions that we've not been answering. So I think, yeah, all of it's positive because it all moves us towards whatever the answer will end up being. But I think well, it's so you could even make a case. So to me, it's like safe. And, and again, I always feel compelled to say this. I have all the respect in the world for safe and what Dean's trying to do. And I think it's a pattern that works well in some contexts. The challenge is though, is that safe is trying to straddle a middle ground. It's trying to recognize that there's coordination issues at scale. It's trying to recognize that there's dependencies between teams that there's this thing called a value stream that needs to be managed. But, um, and again, right, I haven't, I haven't talked with Dean about this in a long time. And so I might not be totally up to speed on, on the latest thinking, but safe in practice, at least as I see it, um, with the clients that we've got that are, are trying to implement aspects of it is that it's still kind of doing agility within this PI, this program increment. And, and it's still very heavily slanted towards inspect and adapt and very loose controls. And so in our world, SAFE is a lower right quadrant construct. It provides us some ability to have ad, to be agile, again, if the right conditions are in place, to be more agile than we might have been and to avoid some of the common pitfalls of Scrum. 
but it, it, it's, it's really neither mode two, but it's n- neither really mode one. It's like for an organization that's kind of trying to straddle the middle. I would suggest that a mode one organization needs more planning and more forethought than SAFE is advocating. And I would suggest that a mode two organization needs more innovation than SAFE is capable of delivering. So it's okay, a different so, answer. So the, the bimodal thing is a different way of getting Yeah, well, to the it's, very, it's very analogous. You know, so as, as I've talked about SAFE at times in the past, you know, I talk about SAFE as a stopping place in, in around Basecamp 3 and the lower right quadrant of, of, our, of our model because it's not as plan-driven as a lower left quadrant, Basecamp 1 and Basecamp 2, and it's not as innovative and adaptive, but it allows you to be more um, innovative and adaptive and, and, and release more frequently. But what it does is it kind of stops before it forces changes in governance and it stops before it forces breaking of dependencies between the agents and the system. Right. But the problem it's trying to solve is this massive number of teams trying to coordinate all their stuff. Yeah. But, but again, it's, it's the thing about safe that's fascinating is that, is that it, um, it makes a certain set of assumptions because because it's all it's all an encapsulation technique. So when Scrum encapsulates a single team and says, "Okay, go be agile," it's like six to eight people that can operate autonomously. Yeah. What Safe is kind of saying is that you eight to ten teams, or maybe fifteen teams, you guys are going to plan and coordinate as if you're an autonomous entity. The reality is, is that in a lot of, especially organizations that are leveraging kind of shared services and shared components, the shared components are shared by multiple value streams. Yeah. Um, and so safe, even though it accommodates a larger organization, it still requires a, a, an encapsulation of the work. And if you do safe without that encapsulation, safe will have the same problems that Scrum's going to have. It just has them one degree further removed from the team. Yeah. Okay. And so again, right, it's a, it's just an, another way of saying that dependencies kill agile. Anytime there's something that I have to coordinate, whether it's, um, resource, um, people utilization across teams or whether it be technical debt or technical dependencies or whether it be business processes and business process dependencies, anytime that there's, there's intersections, it limits agility because it requires coordination. And anytime I have coordination, then I, then I slow myself down. Yeah. Okay. And you, and you talked about the dependencies in the blog post that you had up a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of my thing right now, man. Dependencies kind of drive me crazy. But, um, but so, it's all yeah, because I, you want to go get a steak instead of going to the pub with your wife. Yeah. There you go. Right. Yeah. So you read that one. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the irony of that blog post is we had that almost exact same scenario happen in our life like the next weekend. And wow. uh, so it was like, it's like um, art became life there for a moment. But so what basically, so what's interesting is so let's just kind of say this again is that, is that mode one, Gartner mode one is an to a leading agile lower left quadrant agile implementation. Yeah. We can do structured, plan-driven, um, dependency-aware, very intentional, iterative and incremental delivery in that lower left quadrant. And again, that's I think that's very similar to the goals that um, that Mode One is ascribing to um, and trying to go for. Yeah. Mode Two, what, what Gardner is very explicitly saying about Mode Two is that Mode Two has to operate independently of the Mode One stuff, which is a big um, deal. Yeah, it's going to call APIs. I mean, it can interact with them, but what it really boils down to is it can't share resources with them. It can't share the governance mindset with them. Yeah. It can't operate within the same constraints. Um, more, more importantly, it can't in, inject changes 
necessarily into the mode one organization and expect to get them. You know, it can request them, right? It could, the, 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 the mode one stuff can evolve and accommodate over time. But for this mode two stuff to be truly adaptive and innovative, it kind of has to ride on top of the existing mode one organization as is. Yeah. Okay. Cause they're not going to be incredibly in lockstep. Okay. Yep. Now, again, what I think, what I think safe is trying to do is just trying to straddle a middle ground between mode one and mode two, where it's saying, you know, if we can encapsulate a value stream and have them do some of this iterative and incremental stuff that we can, we can strike a balance. Figure out a way game. to make it work. Okay. Yeah. But again, I, I think what we're going to see is that it's going to, it's going to solve some problems for some people, but it's not going to be enough for the mode one people. And it's not going to be enough for the mode two people. Yeah. And so I think it's going to trap us in, in this kind of middle ground. And if that middle ground's okay, and we intentionally decide that that middle ground's good enough, and, and we have the right conditions to do SAFE well, then I think SAFE will be a fine solution for a subset of organizations. I think the intentionality okay. is the key there. I mean, that, yeah. that's, you got to yeah. make conscious choices. So I, I know you have to go, and I want to ask yep. you one totally unrelated question. Okay, shoot. So you're somebody who I know is very focused on kind of hacking your life and trying to become more efficient okay. and find better ways to do things. So what, I mean, we haven't talked about this in, in several weeks. So like over the last month or month and a half, is there something new that you've found that is, is kind of helping you get better at being the guy that you are and getting all the stuff done that you need to get done? Any new techniques or hints about stuff to be more productive or be more efficient in living your life? So so that's a that's a really big question, um, uh, Dave. So <laughs> I so thought it would be great um, to just drop that on you at the end. Yeah. So there's like, so so I'd say kind of yes and no. So okay. you know, my our big challenges, right, as a company, and is and, and it really there's almost no distinction between me and the running of the company at this point. <laughs> um, you know, just life. They're like work, the board. All it's all just become together. the human machine thing. Yeah, well, it's just like <laughs> in a you know, good way. It's just you know the good thing about running a company is that you can kind of do what you want. Um, but then the the downside is that you never truly get peace. You never truly get a break from it because there's just inputs all the time. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that I do to survive is I'm very much a systems kind of guy. Um, I realize that there's a limitation to my ability to work hard to keep this thing going. And so a large part of my focus really over the last year and a half has been, um, has been how do we stabilize the operational execution engine of leading agile so that leading agile can scale, can double, can triple from what it is, you know, and that involves sales and it involves marketing and it involves delivery and it involves all this kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, over the last over the last year and and in the last month to answer your question i've been i just i'm been spending a ton of time thinking about what are the systems that we need to have in place to be able to truly um, scale, create safety for our clients, create safety for our consultants when they engage, make sure expectations are managed right all that kind of stuff and safety um, for our leadership well well yeah right i mean um yeah and i think day to day i think we're probably safe as safe as anybody or maybe even more safe you know because you know we can sit and kind of uh you know this this think tank that is leading agile and kind of try to invent new things but at the end of the day the consultants on the ground are the ones that have to go out and competently do yeah. this stuff and execute it and be and and be as conversant around it as as i am and and that's and that's hard right and it's difficult for them we recognize that so we're trying to come up with a lot of um, ways of trying to help prepare and enable our consultants 
um, to be more successful. Um, there's other things that, um, like one of the things I, I had kind of an epiphany, um, Saturday morning and I was really thinking through a lot of stuff and, and I have some ideas for, uh, some things we're going to do in the interview process, um, to make sure that we're, we're bringing on the right kind of people that can be incredibly resilient and, um, good on their feet. And again, not that our existing staff isn't, but you know, just how do we continue to find those people as as we draw from a wider pool? And then, um, and then also some things about how we're going to um, grow and expand the business and some other adjacent kinds of things that we want to do that will create um, – they'll take some of the pressure off of our core consulting organization because what we do in core consulting is really dicey. I mean we're going in and we're promising big changes and we're helping to execute those changes. and Irritating and so, the environment until the change happens. Yeah, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of stuff at play that um, it's within our influence but not necessarily within our control. And so creating safety for the company by diversifying and things like that um, is, is really cool. And then um, you know, the, the fun thing that we're, we're doing right now, and this is totally not your, your question, but it's like I'm just – It's have okay. To, I got a way to bring it back in a second. Yeah. Tell so, so we're um, you know, at Agile Ignore 2016. Ignore my question. At Agile 2016 next year, it's in Atlanta. And so we're going we're gonna to show up uh, in, a, in a really big way. And we've actually just rented out um, an iconic local venue called the Tabernacle. Um, which holds about 2,000 people. It's built into an old church, and we've hired an iconic Atlanta band called Collective Soul, who probably a lot of people have heard of, and they're going to do a concert um, for us. And it's going to be a free concert, and it's going to be open to our clients and prospects as kind of VIPs, but then um, we're going to open it up to the conference, and we're going to open it up to um, to some community people as well. So that's all in the works. We just got all that contract and stuff inked this week. And so um, I'm not sure that that simplifies my life or helps get it under control. But man, being able to hire well, my favorite band in the whole world to, there you to go. a concert that Let's I get to invite ass. all of my best friends and, and people in the industry to. Um, yeah, it's kick ass. I'm, I'm super yeah. excited about it. So, so a big part, I guess maybe to try to tie it to your question is that um, a big part of the way I keep saying is, is it can't be all work all the time, right? There's gotta be some fun and there's well, gotta be some things that we're doing and, and getting to hire collective soul, man. It's just like, it's like the king. I'm, it's like, like a dream. Yeah. It's a dream come true. Right. And, awesome. and I think shift your shift, at least I know for me, the shift, fo- uh, the focus shift, sorry, from I'm hacking myself to I'm hacking my work. And it sounds yeah. like the same thing with you guys. Like sometimes I know you're very much about your routine and how do you be more efficient in the morning. And other times it's all about the company. Yeah. That seems like a well, normal thing. It, it kind of ebbs and flows. It was like, I think what you're referring to is a couple months ago, I was getting to the point where I felt like, you know, just, just everything was so overwhelming. And yeah. And- did is I just decided just to get up in the morning. I wasn't going to actually start work till noon. So I got up and I would run and I would drink coffee and I would read and I would think, and I would stay off of social media. But anyway, so yeah, just have some time to think. Right. And so, um, I did that for about six weeks and then I kind of came out of it and I didn't need to do that anymore. And, um, and so, uh, it just, it, it ebbs and flows. Like right now I have a tremendous amount of energy for the business. We've got a ton of great things going on. Um, we're bringing some new clients in and, but if it gets out of balance, then, then I'll do something else. Yeah. And, uh, and, but it's, but it's all good right now. So I'm in cool. a good place. Well, and thanks for doing this and congratulations on getting to hire your favorite band. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I'm super excited. We actually just, we just hired a warm up band this morning before I was talking to you. So I'm not going to say who that is yet. Um, we'll announce we'll that. We'll save that. They can check back. Save that for next, next, next blog. That, nobody's, or nobody's probably ever heard of these guys, but they're an awesome local band here in Atlanta. And I got to see them um, down in Orlando a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and so I decided to hire them and they're, they're way cheaper than collective soul. So they, they fit within our budget. 
Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Yeah. So thanks. So I'm sure there's going to be updates on what's going to happen at the conference and we'll be doing yep. more podcasts. So I know you got other stuff you got to do, but I really appreciate you taking some time out of your morning. You got it, man. Talk to you later. Thanks. Thanks.